today I have the um, retiring CEO of Ryman Healthcare. Gordon, welcome uh, into the, the podcast. Great to have you on. Oh, thank you very much, Bernard. It's a pleasure. <laughs> yeah. Could you tell us a bit more about Ryman, its staff, where it is in New Zealand and in Australia, and why it, it's so important, this issue around temporary work visas? Sure. Well, Ryman Healthcare was founded in Christchurch in 1984, and since that time, we've become the largest provider of aged care and retirement village services to older people in Australasia, I think. And we have about 6,500 staff. We look after about 12,700 residents. We have over 40 villages throughout New Zealand and also in Victoria. And we do everything in-house, which is what makes us quite different in that we buy our own land, we get it consented ourselves, we have our own in-house architects and building designers, we procure all of our own build materials, we have our own building teams and we build our own villages and then we operate fully. So we're an end-to-end developer and operator of retirement villages and aged care and of course to do that we require a very significant construction workforce. So we're one of the biggest construction companies in New Zealand and growing in Victoria at any one, on any one day, for example, we've got 12 sites on the go right now across New Zealand and Melbourne. In fact, it's just turned into 13. We would have about 3,500 subcontractors working for us on any one day and also and on top of the 6,500 staff that we employ. And, of course, there's a wide variety of cultures, a really diverse range of people that work with us, both obviously Australians and New Zealanders, but also people from all around the world. And that's the same in our care centres too, where we, where we recruit and employ a lot of people from places like the Philippines, and obviously the majority of our staff are actually New Zealand residents. But we do have about 25 to 30% of our, both of our construction and our care workforces who were people who rely on having visas to be able to work in New Zealand. And what was your initial reaction and, and how you uh, dealt with the hearing about COVID and what it might mean for our borders and, and for your workers? Well, we started paying a lot of attention to COVID in about January last year, and it was very worrying because we were reading what was happening in, happening in Italy, New York, etc. So we really battened down the hatches. We got a lot of epidemiology advice. We invested about $50 million in PPE and staff protection, welfare for residents, and we basically did the exact opposite of what we want to do with the Ryman Village, which, which is we shut them. And we shut them before the country shut down we were very determined to keep COVID out to protect our elders and also to protect our staff as well. So it was a, we saw it as a very significant event and still do. In fact, we're just coming out of our fifth lockdown in Victoria, which has been significant. And gosh, Bernard, the efforts that our team, particularly when they're dealing with older people, what they have to put in when there's a lockdown is, is incredible. We become the families of our residents because people can't come and visit them to protect to protect people. Staff often need to wear, will always need to wear face masks. And in Australia, face masks plus a plastic face shield. And it's incredibly difficult dealing with older people with cognitive ability challenges and that sort of thing when you're wearing PPE. And gosh, our staff just go the extra mile and treat residents as if they're their very own family. There must have been some scary moments when the various outbreaks happened, not just in New Zealand, but in Australia, particularly for staff who are right at the at the um, yeah. pointy, dangerous end. It sure was. And look, d- during the second half of last calendar year in Melbourne, 650 people died in aged care. We, we, we kept COVID out, both in New Zealand and Australia within Ryman, 
but generally in the sector in, in Melbourne, 600 and old, 650 older people died, 134 different aged care centres got COVID. So that's just a microcosm of what could happen here still in New Zealand, what could happen further in Australia. And so we really depend on having people working with us as part of our Ryman family who go the extra mile. And many of the people there, the 20 to 30% of your staff, no doubt have family overseas. It might be the Philippines or India or wherever who haven't been able to go and visit those families at, yeah. or maybe brings their partners out uh, because of the restrictions mm-hmm. on visas and, and travel. Could you mm-hmm. tell us a bit about how those people are, are feeling now that we're a year and a half into it and it looks like it's going to be another you know, year or so before anything gets back to normal? Mm. Well, of course, it's very difficult for me to... I try and put myself in other people's shoes as much as I can, and I'm loath to try and depict how someone else is feeling. But what I hear from people is that they've, they feel alone. A lot of people feel very alone and afraid because they're seeing COVID doing terrible things overseas. As you say, Bernard, they can't see their families. And what, what has been really concerning for a lot of people is that they're scared to leave New Zealand because they don't know if they'll be able to come back. And you and must so have you've got that double whammy. You've got that double whammy effect of not, not really being able to go back. And even if you could, you're too scared to leave. And you must have um, some staff members who have a lot of uncertainty around their visas, whether they mm. might roll, uh, whether they can get residency. They may be in a residency queue. Tell us, you know, what, what you're hearing from some of your staff about that. They're deeply distressed. They feel the future is uncertain for them. And the rhetoric that they hear from the government and which is relayed in mainstream media and unfortunately quite often through, say, talkback radio, is that migrants are labelled as being the cause of a lot of problems in New Zealand when, in fact, our staff in construction and in aged care and nursing, they have provided incredible service to New Zealand throughout COVID and incredible service to our older people and the country should be thanking them and finding a way to help them stay in New Zealand because they want to be New Zealand citizens. And the last thing that New Zealand needs right now is to lose people from this country who are skilled, who love New Zealand, and also who have done us tremendous service over many years, and particularly the last 18 months. We should be treasuring people who want to stay here. And it's I, I, I get sort of quite emotional about it because... When I, when I see our care workers on the floor and how, how distressing the, the situation is for them and how they're treated in the media and, and how politicians discuss them as almost like a, a label rather than as human beings, it's just not on. Now, you mentioned that you had some staff members who sent you letters about their situation. Is, is there some expert excerpts you could read? Absolutely. Yeah, so, so this is this is quite a, this is quite a representative feedback we get through our HR teams. Look, we've always been very supportive of our migrant staff. They're part of our, part of the Ryman family. And look, I won't mention this person's name because it obviously wouldn't be appropriate. But this is from one of our senior caregivers in New Zealand, and and what she said was she's writing writing to me on behalf of migrant caregivers and nurses in New Zealand with regards to Immigration New Zealand's current policy of suspending selection of expression of interest for skilled migrant category resident visas. 
the current suspension of expressions of interest has led to immense uncertainty amongst healthcare workers, and we're concerned that there's no clear pathway for residency, and many migrants and many caregivers and nurses will be forced to leave New Zealand as they see no future prospects here. And then she goes on to say, there are thousands of nurses and caregivers in the expression of interest pool, both of which New Zealand are desperately short of. And so they talk about the the fact that it's incredibly distressing and that there just isn't a clear pathway, Bernard, to know, well, what is your future? And that's one of the most important things for all of us is certainty. And I'll never forget when I visited an MP a few years ago in Wellington to talk about immigration settings. At that time, it was regarding the one-year stand-down criteria that had been introduced after three years. And the follow-up letter that I got said, and by the way, please tell your staff that they should make sure that they develop no connection with New Zealand whatsoever during their temporary during their temporary one-year stay. Now, these are people who are caring for the life of World War II veterans and become people's families. And I just thought that was an incredible turn of phrase to use in respect of any human being. So how do you feel about what's happened to your staff there and the uncertainty that they're, they're feeling? Because I'm guessing you're having to respond to your staff yeah. and you know, reassure or give them information. How do you feel about yeah. that? Yeah, well, what we try and do, Bernard, is keep our staff up to date with the measures that we're taking to support them so that they know that at Ryman we really support our people as best we can. We discuss with them the lobbying that we do through various industry organisations but also directly with senior members of parliament. For me personally, how I feel about it is I always feel an immense sense of responsibility to do everything in my power to try and influence. And sometimes that means unpopular discussions and perhaps people seeing me as a bit of a pain, talking about it repeatedly. But we've got to do our best to look after people because they're doing their best to look after older people and and build villages for us. So the least we can do is to support them. Now, last year during the lockdowns, there was this phrase, the team of five million, and yeah. the phrase to be kind was used. What do you think the government should do now that there is this enormous backlog of applications, enormous uncertainty about the future. How do you think the government could be kind and and be that team of, create that team of five million? Well, look, even if kindness didn't come into it, a very pragmatic thing to do would be to make sure that people who are here right now, who are trained and love New Zealand, can stay and become residents of this country. Because I tell you what, when the borders start opening again, countries like Australia, Canada, America, Europe, they face the same challenge that we face, which is there's work to be done, there's houses to be built, there's older people to be looked after, and that requires human beings. And the last thing that New Zealand should do, from even if it's not even kindness, from a purely pragmatic point of view, it's essential that we don't lose people offshore right now, particularly with unemployment so low. There's very few other options. Now, we're doing our best with things like nurse entry to practice programs, lots of apprenticeships, lots of training of local people too. It's not one thing or another. It's not either or, it's and. And the thing that we can do for our overseas people who have been very loyal to New Zealand and seen us right during this time is make sure they can stay. 
and that would be seen as an enormous act of kindness and put people out of a lot of misery. That's what I'd love to see happen. Mm. There's been some proposals bubbling up in the last few days. National has proposed a COVID recovery visa, which gives uh, certainty for those who are already in the queue for a residency, 35,000 or so. But there is 200,000 people here on various types of work visas. The NZIR has proposed that everyone here on a work visa be given certainty that they can stay until the end of 2024. And then there are some who simply say, people who've been here, those 200,000, part of the team of 5 million, they took the risks, worked hard with everyone, and deserve to be given residency if they, if they want. What's your view? Well, look, I agree with that third view. And of course, I'm talking about the people that we know the best, people that have worked with us. But look, there's... I'm sure that very simple checks can be done to see how, you know, obviously we need to do some checks for people to, to go through that process. But I, but I can vouch for the people that have been working for us. I've done an amazing job, and I believe that there should be that pathway to residency offered. And from a government point of view, if that doesn't happen, I believe a lot of people are going to leave this country. We're going to have a severe skills shortage, and the response to that will be, guess what? Migration settings will be turned up, people that were going are going to be, need to be retrained and all that sort of thing. I think you start with looking after the people that you've got, don't you? And the most pragmatic thing that can be done is to take those expressions of interest and treat them with some respect. The parts of the email I just read out before, that lady put an expression of interest in April last year to Immigration New Zealand, paid the money and has heard nothing, not one thing. Is that, how do you treat people like that? Gordon McLeod, the CEO of Ryman Healthcare. Thank you very much for, for talking to us. Well, welcome to uh, Duncan Cottrell lawyer Nicola Tiffin, who is talking to us from Christchurch here on When the Facts Change. Welcome in, uh, Nicola. It's great to have you on at short notice. Thanks. It's great to be here. Tell us what you're seeing at the moment in the immigration system for temporary work visas and those who want pathways to residence. For temporary work visas, there's been a lot of change. So there's been a lot of confusion from both migrants and employers as to where they stand. Only today I've had two work visa holders who thought they'd been granted extensions but hadn't because of the you know the ministerial directions and the announcements and the communication confusion and of course people with temporary visas are currently separated from their most well most of them are separated from their families and unable to reunite with them and of course many of them are precluded from applying for residence at the present time because of the suspension of the skilled migrant category so how's that affecting people in their lives and also with the businesses they're working with? Well, to talk about the first issue with people being confused about their visas and being able to move from one employer to another, that's causing considerable anxiety and also problems for employers themselves in terms of moving employees into different positions because the labour market's quite fluid at the moment. In terms of employees not being able to see their families, that's causing considerable heartache and upset. For example, I have one client who hasn't, he's a highly technical information technology expert, and he hasn't been able to see his son since the son was born. 
And in terms of residents, not being able to move forward with residence visa applications, I've got multiple families who are unable to apply or have applied and been waiting months and months for a decision. So they're unable to either A, unite with their families because residents, New Zealand residents can travel and bring their families in, whereas temporary migrant holder, visa holders can't. And also they can't um, make plans for their lives. They can't purchase a home. They, you know, they, they, their children who are getting close to needing to go to university can't get to university. There's a whole myriad of problems that arise out of this. What's gone wrong in the system, do you think? Well, I think it's a twofold issue. One, we've had the pandemic, we've had COVID-19, and the government's had to react to that by closing the borders and preventing individuals from moving in and out of the country. And on top of that, we've had a government that's decided to reset immigration parameters. And they've, they've been trying to do that at the same time as managing the COVID-19 border closures. What do you think they sh should have done there? Because it sounds like they're trying to re-engineer the um, jet plane as it's coming in for a crash landing. Well, it's, it's difficult for me to second-guess policy decision-making, but I think we could have communicated the decisions much in a much more timely and clear manner to the migrants themselves and to employers. There has been the delay of the introduction of the compulsory accreditation scheme for employers, which in many ways is a good thing, but employers have been confused and worrying about that at the same time as their employees have been confused and worrying about their visas. So I, I suppose in summation, I would say that the problem is communication at the present time. So we're in a situation now where there are people looking down the barrel of two years stuck in residency application held, disconnected from families, uncertain about their futures, living in a place that called itself a team of five million and that it was kind and compassionate, but they don't certainly feel it. What do you think could be done here to recover our national pride or reputation here? Because at the moment, I'm I'm not happy telling people overseas we're a good place to come. Yeah, I, I have some empathy for that because it's very difficult for someone in my position to advise clients on what to do. And in fact, when the law hasn't been published yet and we don't know in which direction the law is going to go. In terms of what we could do, I think I and my clients would like to see the government announce what the plans are. A roadmap like Australia has, has um, produced and I appreciate that may be difficult because we've got to manage the border and the spaces in MIQ, but perhaps even just letting people know what the end goal is in a, a hoped-for time frame would at least allow people to have some certainty that long-term they're welcome in this country. Some have suggested some sort of exemption or some sort of amnesty for people who are here on temporary work visas, particularly those with essential skills visas, What's your view on you know clearing, finding some way to clear the decks and start again? It depends on what you mean by an amnesty. Normally an amnesty would be applied to somebody who was here unlawfully. There's different reasons why someone could be unlawfully in the country. So for example, there could be people who are unlawful because they no longer meet the character or the good health requirements to stay in New Zealand that may not be in New Zealand's or very possibly in the migrants' interests themselves to remain here. But for people who have become unlawful because they've lost their jobs 
or have moved on to a different job and didn't realise they needed to change their visa or their visas actually expired without them being aware of it because of the different changes with visa expiry dates, then yes, an amnesty would be quite sensible and productive, I believe, in order to, as you say, index and allow people to move forward. One of the problems seems to be here that the government hasn't made its own mind up about what its residency planning range or target or allowance should be each year. And despite various calls for the government before and after the last election to come up with a number, which we can all see and start to understand and work out whether the point system makes sense for that and also set some expectations about whether it's realistic to get residency. I wonder, what's your views on the current or the potential mix we should have of temporary work visas and visas that actually create a pathway to residency? Well, I, there are several facets to that question. There's a, there's a significant economic facet. There's also the problem I believe the government's very conscious of in that we've got enormous pressure on the housing stock in New Zealand. So if we have an, a large number of people becoming residents, perhaps that's going to place further pressure on housing supply and further drive up the cost of housing for New Zealanders. But on the other hand, New Zealand is a country that people come to to settle. It's not close to anywhere else. So people can't don't come here just for three or four years to work and then go home again. They tend to come here for the lifestyle to raise their family and to settle down. So I, I would be concerned that if we didn't allow a reasonable number of migrants to progress to residency, we may find ourselves very short in terms of workers and skills in the workforce. Now, playing a devil's advocate, we've had large numbers of temporary uh, workers through in the last five or six years, and there was a real uh, spike up in 2018. The Labor government has said, we're a little bit concerned here that there could be some downward pressure on wages from a lot of people who are working, and not necessarily in the highest skilled, most you know professional, professionally trained areas. So we're talking people working in service stations and shops and aged care and the likes. What's what's your view on you know whether there's something that that needs to be dealt with here more broadly? I think you're asking me whether if we opened up the residence pathway we may have pressure, downward pressure on wages. And I think the answer to that is to set the criteria for residence at a point where people are at least earning at the median or above the median wage. And that policy is very much in place already. Right. So just to finalise here, You've worked overseas uh, in the UK and, and here in New Zealand as, a, as an immigration lawyer. There was, there was a time a while ago when New Zealand's point system and its residency targets were the envy of the world. <laughs> in fact, in the UK, you used to hear about you know, the Australian system, which is very similar to ours. How do you feel about our current system now? Um. I do still have a lot of colleagues and friends who are working as immigration lawyers in London and it's interesting to me that the United Kingdom is adopting a very similar system to our point system at the same time where our point system has been suspended for almost two, you know, almost 18 months. And on that note, uh, we'll leave it there. Nicola, <laughs> thank you very much. Well, thank you very much to Alistair McClymont, who's talking to us from Auckland and uh, a prominent and 
excellent immigration lawyer who I regularly speak to on these issues. Um, Alistair, tell us what um, you think is going on with our immigration system at the moment. <laughs> well, that's how much time have we got? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think everybody recognises it's a it's a complete mess. I, th- I think that the government sort of had in mind some some major changes when they started their first term. COVID has given them the opportunity of trying to implement those changes, but it's all sort of turned a little bit sort of sour. And I think particularly with news today about the unemployment rates being a lot lower than what was expected, that probably really sort of upset the apple cart quite a lot. I think a lot of the immigration planning was around the idea that there'd be a, a large number of Kiwis looking for work and that just simply hasn't proven to be the case. So we've got a lot of people now who are waiting up to two years, they think, to get some sort of resolution on their application for residency, a whole bunch of people stuck in a, a queue that now has now been closed. What do you think the government should do here to do the right thing, but also to try and improve our reputation in, in the world of trying to get people into our economy? Yeah, well, that's the this problem is it's the reputational thing is is really causing a lot of damage because there's now going to be a real a real fight among countries like New Zealand to to bring in sort of skilled work, but our international reputation is really suffering because of it. But I really think that they've got to do something really significant to wipe the slate clean. And you, know, you talked briefly about this idea of an amnesty. I don't really like the term amnesty, but I think they really have to do something to clear the backlog. In one massive, the, the major backlogs are in the skilled migrant category, which is the flagship immigration policy. Every political party would agree that it's a complete mess and needs a total overhaul because it's not fit for purpose. So, what's the point in keeping all these people in the queue and continuing to maintain these huge backlogs in an application and um, a policy that nobody actually wants? So. Yeah, it's great that the government are looking at changing the skilled migrant policy, but they really need to do something to allow Immigration New Zealand to sort of clear their desk and start all over again from the beginning. And at the same time, using COVID as the opportunity to to allow the people who are already here working to actually stay there because we can't bring anyone else in large numbers yet. So what do you think um, the Immigration New Zealand could do or the government could do uh, to deal with this to wipe the slate clean? Well, we talked about an amnesty, but amnesties have traditionally been for overstayers. And I think we need to expand that concept of an amnesty to look more at the temporary visa holders that are here in New Zealand. Because obviously there's very little movement of people around the world at the moment, including our temporary visa holders leaving and going back to their own countries. Now, we may have New Zealand citizens or New Zealand residents going to Australia within a travel bubble, which obviously has an effect on net migration. But we have, you know, almost 200,000 people here on temporary visas who already have housing, who already have jobs, who are already contributing to the economy. And a lot of them contributed uh, a lot during um, our lockdown. So a lot of these people are in these queues for skilled migrant and um, are having a really tough time of it. So I think, you know, something really transformational that the government could do is to have this concept of an amnesty apply to those people who are on temporary visas to allow them to go under a very simple pathway to a residency, clear the skilled migrant backlog, and use that opportunity to redesign the skilled migrant policy to something which is actually fit. So we've currently got about 200,000 people in New Zealand on uh, temporary work visas of one sort or another, students, there's a few backpackers, people on uh, skilled work visas, essential skills visas, not to mention many people who are attached to them as family members and the likes. Do you think we could 
do the whole lot. Can we handle that? Yeah, I mean, well, as I say, they're they're already here working. They're already here, and the kids are at school, and they're driving on the motorways, and they're and they're living in houses. So we're not going to have any infrastructure strain by allowing these people to stay. Now, a lot of them are restricted in where they can work and what kind of work they can do because of either the conditions on their work visa or because they're applying for resident visas under the skilled migrant category, a policy which everybody recognises is not fit for purpose. So. If we want to use this labor for in particular regions and in particular industries and in particular companies, then it's really quite simple to design a pathway to residency for the temporary visa holders to incentivize and encourage these 180,000 people to work where and what kind of work we want them. The government have also introducing a mandatory accreditation process for employers to manage exploitation risks. So that can then be fitted in nicely with this pathway to residency by having requirements such as if you work for one of these accredited employers in this particular industry, in this particular region, we will grant you a resident visa subject to health and character requirements in either 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, depending on how much you want to incentivize these people. So it needs some transformational thinking and some transformational ideas. Yes, that that would be really interesting if, if it happened. I'm curious, though, you know, we're going to have to do something to clear the decks to get some sanity back in the system and also do the right thing. But long term, one of the concepts in and around our migration system for a couple of decades now has been this idea of a residency range of somewhere between 90 and 100,000 new residencies granted every couple of years, which both sides of politics up until a couple of years ago were relatively comfortable with. What do you think about the long-term future of that residency reign target idea and whether we can sustainably have, you know, at any one time 200, 300,000 people on temporary work visas but only award 40 or 50,000 residencies each year? Yeah, well, I think there's a couple of issues here. I mean, one is a broader population policy and the discussion that needs to be had in this country, which we haven't had for a very long time. And that's you know, partly where the residence range comes from. I think the second problem was that this residence range was never really a problem until we started having a lot of media stories around high net migration rates in around about 2016. And remember, those net migration figures included a lot of New Zealanders coming back here, a lot of New Zealanders slowing down the rate in which they were leaving for Australia, and that affected the net migration figure. But the general public and the way that the media um, ran the stories about net migration numbers just made it look like there was a flood of migrants coming in. So I think that the political parties tended to sort of panic. There's a knee-jerk reaction. There was a, an election coming up. So all of a sudden, they suddenly started talking about reducing migration numbers, which is incredibly counter as a country. We it's not so much that we're trying to sort of build up our population so much, but it's that we're trying to ensure that we have the skills that are needed to replace those people who tend to leave New Zealand and go and work overseas for large periods of time simply um, because of geography. We were, we were located in the world. And it's just a, a fact that um, we're a small country at the bottom of the world and a lot of skilled people want to go and get their experience overseas or they go and follow the big bucks over in Australia in the mining industries. On that issue of Australia, I'm told that one of the reasons the government is reluctant to do some sort of large-scale one-off granting of residency or path to residency is that the Australians fear or are opposed to an awful lot of people, they believe, using New Zealand as the back door once they get residency here, jumping across the Tasman and having the same work rights as 
other New Zealanders, although not the same, not the same rights as a citizen of Australia. But what are your thoughts about you know should we should we kowtow or fear the Australians on this? Well, it does seem quite bizarre that we would be basing our immigration policy on what the Australians think when the Australians clearly don't reciprocate the favour and just decide to send send us whoever they feel like it. But, you know, this has been an issue around for a very long time and one of the reasons why the citizenship laws changed where you need to be a New Zealand resident five years before you can obtain a New Zealand pass. So to delay a lot of new residents then just sort of packing up and going to Australia. So it has been a problem, but this is just part of the agreement that we have in Australia. So if this was really an issue, then it really needs to go around the um, renegotiation of the agreement that Australia and New Zealand have regarding those work rights rather than fiddling with our immigration rules. Do, do you think more broadly, though, in the long run, that there needs to be a proper debate or conversation to get a social license back for, you know, temporary work and resident, a pathway to residency that brings in issues like infrastructure spending and housing and that, the like? What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that was going on in the media around that 2016 time with migration rates. It was very counterproductive to having an, an intelligent, well-designed immigration system because, you know, in a, in a two-minute media story at six o'clock on TV, you don't really have the opportunity to discuss all the different issues. So you just simply say, um, net migration, immigrants coming in, stealing jobs, driving the house prices up, clogging up our motorways without actually having a proper discussion about it. So, you know, and that's the nature of a democracy, isn't it? <laughs> is that, you know, what people see on the news is that's how they vote and then that's how policy is made. So it's, it's been pretty counterproductive. Um, but, and we've ended up in this, this mess where... Yeah, and we've ended up in a real mess because of it. And, and again, because we, we decided to cut immigration numbers. There are a lot of industries that are heavily dependent on, on migrant workers. And, you know, we, we grossly underestimated the number of unemployed that we're going to have post-COVID. And we've found ourselves in a real situation. And we seem to find ourselves with a government that doesn't want to say, well, perhaps we were a bit premature. Perhaps we made some mistakes. Perhaps we underestimated let's sort of relook at it, they just seem to want to sort of stick with an ideological position and just run with it regardless of the circumstances. Um, but you know, the, the house price one is a very good one because you will remember that in 2016, the high house prices were blamed on foreigners coming in buying houses. Now, we haven't had any foreigners coming in buying houses now for a couple of years, but it hasn't had any effect on the house prices and we don't see the government apologising for that. You're right there. Alistair, thank you very much. Alistair McClymont, um, an immigration lawyer in Auckland. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Brennan.